Today on the Matt Walsh Show, Americans continue to drop out of the workforce at an alarming pace. This is part of a general decline that includes church attendance and marriage rates. What is behind all of this and how much of it is, is the leftover effect of the COVID shutdowns? We'll talk about that today. Also, Republicans add another election loss to their tally. Time magazine shocks no one with their person of the year selection. A grand jury report proves that the sex abuse scandal in Loudoun County is way worse than we thought. California makes plans to deliver reparations, and a woke TikToker explains why white people should seek permission before hanging out with black people. It's very important advice. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and this battle is now finally leaving D.C. and going to the grassroots. No group in America is better positioned than 40 Days for Life with about 1 million volunteers in 1,000 cities, 40 Days for Life holds peaceful vigils outside of abortion facilities. They have a larger presence in blue states, with California being their largest state. Some former abortion facility directors say these vigils can cause the abortion no-show rate to go as high as 75%, which is detrimental to their abortion business. Uh, these law-abiding vigils have closed many abortion businesses in America, and nearly half of those closed abortion facilities were in liberal cities where abortion will remain legal, including closures in San Francisco, Chicago, and Seattle. 40 Days for Life is effectively changing hearts and minds in the grassroots to end abortion. You can check out their locations, podcasts, and free magazine at 40daysforlife.com. The fight continues. It is not over, so it's so important for you to get engaged. And for more information, again, go to 40daysforlife.com. That's 40daysforlife.com. Well, back in 2020, as we all recall, and we'll never forget until the day we die, governments across the world forced citizens into their homes, closed our workplaces, our churches, our schools, everything, and invented arbitrarily a stifling series of rules and regulations to govern anyone who still dared to venture outside of their homes and gather around other human beings if they dared. Uh, they tried to muzzle our faces. They told us how many feet we're supposed to stay separated from each other. They did all of this out of some combination of panic and competence and, of course, premeditated malice and opportunism. I don't really need to recount the story. I realize we all lived through it and recently. But even as most of the insane, anti-human, anti-freedom COVID policies have fallen away, somehow we are still living through that period perpetually. The vestiges of the COVID days remain People retreated into their homes and out of society, and it would seem a certain large portion of those people never came out. They never returned. A writer named Matthew Stoller pointed to the problem in a tweet yesterday that got some attention. He said, I hear from right-wing small business owners that employees are just not showing up, and I also hear from left-wing professors that students are just not showing up. This dynamic got much worse during COVID. Something is very off. Church attendance is down. Crime is up. Labor force participation is down. Lifespans are down. Drug overdoses are up. I don't know what's going on, but it's not good. Now, the numbers bear out what he's talking about. The Wall Street Journal reports on just one aspect of this problem. A uh, report this week says the Labor Department's November jobs report on Friday certainly didn't make the Federal Reserve's anti-inflation task any easier. Strong job and wage growth suggests demand for workers still exceeds the supply and inflation is still too high. Notwithstanding reports of layoffs in Silicon Valley, plenty of businesses are hiring. The problem is they still can't find enough workers. It's not merely a result of more baby boomers retiring. Labor force participation among males ages 25 to 54 has slid to 88.4% from 89.3% before the pandemic. The decline is most pronounced among young men. Labor participation among males ages 20 to 24 has fallen 
1.7 percentage points since January 2020 versus 0.5 for those ages 45 to 54. And if these sound like small percentage points, keep in mind, we're talking about over the course of just uh, a couple of years. And also keep in mind, 1.7% of males ages 20 to 24, you know, the actual raw numbers here are, are very large. So the labor shortage is a real problem. It's not just among young men. This is a nationwide, all demographics issue. And as a piece on fortune.com says, uh, reported last week, it's, it's a problem that is probably here to stay because whatever's driving it now, declining birth rates mean that eventually there simply won't be enough young, able-bodied human beings left to fill all the jobs. And that's because the societal withdrawal that we're going through extends far beyond the labor market. People aren't just refusing to go and get jobs. They're also refusing to get married. They're refusing to have babies. They're refusing to start families. All the things that we talk about on this show all the time. This to go along with, yes, the drastically declining church attendance and religious affiliation. Everything seems to be on the decline except drug overdoses and suicides. Those are steadily climbing. So something is going on, yes. Uh, we are seeing a mass retreat, an epidemic of self-isolation, unlike anything that we've ever encountered before. Mass numbers of people have dropped out of society, um, not in the sense of like burning their driver's license and hiking into the Alaskan wilderness like Chris McCandless and into the wild. That's a, that's a much more respectable sort of dropping out. It's at least fully committed, so you can respect that. Our dropouts are different. They're not, you know, out hunting for game in the forest. They're in their homes or someone's home, maybe their parents, enjoying all the luxuries of modern society, watching TV, using their phones, scrolling the internet, ordering DoorDash, playing video games, yet they're not participating in society. They're living off of society. They are not contributing to it. That's the kind of dropout we're talking about. So why? Why is this happening? Now, I began by talking about the COVID shutdowns. And there is no question that they played an enormous role in bringing us to our current state. The shutdowns can be partially blamed for really everything that happens in our culture from here on out. Because they were that kind of pivotal moment in our history. Everything is different now because of them. Nothing has been left untouched. Nothing is the same. The shutdowns had an incredibly demoralizing effect on the population. The vast majority of us were declared non-essential. And not just in our jobs, but nearly every part of our lives. All of the parts that we live and experience outside of our homes were designated non-essential. You were told that uh, it's not essential to go to work. It's not essential to go to school. It's not essential to go to church. It's not essential to go to the park with your kids. It's not essential to go to the beach. It's not essential to gather together with your family around the holidays. It's not essential to sit by your grandmother's bed and hold her hand while she dies. It's not essential to see the faces of strangers that you pass by on the streets. It's not essential for them to see yours. And I think part of what's happening here is that many people took all this to heart. And though most of them have re-entered society to some extent since then, the message settled into their minds, into their souls, that none of this matters. None of it's essential. All that matters is that you keep breathing, that you linger on. And as long as you're fed and sheltered and entertained, you should be perfectly satisfied with that. And if you get to the point where you're not satisfied with that anymore, well, then you take the way out. The way out that Canada, if you live in Canada, is uh, perfectly willing to facilitate for you whether you have a terminal illness or not. So as a people, it would seem that, generally speaking, we learned all the wrong lessons 
from COVID. I mean, it could have been a time of radical reorientation, you know, of like refocusing on the things that truly matters, matter of, of uh, confronting our mortality, of the, you know, the fragility of human existence, committing ourselves to living full lives with purpose and meaning. But that's not what happened societally. Instead, the word came down from the top, from the powers that be, and it resounded in the minds of so many in the population, too many, that you don't need purpose or meaning or joy in your life. You don't need other people. You don't need relationships. You don't need family. You need simply four walls and a roof to, exi- to exist inside of and enough gadgets to keep you distracted. But we cannot let our analysis ignore the fact that all of the troubling trends that we're highlighting here were also present before COVID. So yes, COVID plays a role in all of this, just like it's going to play a role in, in, in everything, as I said, that, that happens from here on out because it was that sort of moment. The virus, or our response to the virus rather, accelerated the trends, amplified them, gave them a kind of turbocharged boost, but it, it didn't create these problems out of whole cloth. Without COVID, we would have ended up probably where we are now, except perhaps maybe it would have taken us another 20 years to get here. So what lies at the root of it all? Well, there's a reason why we as a society learn the wrong lessons from our experiences over the last couple of years. It's because the wrong lessons are the same ones that have been drilled into our heads by the culture from birth. It's, um, it's the message that our kids being, are being taught. It's a message of nihilism. You know, that's what lies at the heart of all this. People aren't working or they aren't working hard. Remember the, the, you know, the so-called quiet quitting trend, the very popular trend, which is part of this story too. It's not just people not going to work. There are also lots of people going to work and just, but they don't care anymore. Uh, So they're doing that. They're not getting married. Uh, They aren't going to church, wasting their lives, looking at their damned phones because they don't see meaning in anything. They, they, they are simply biding time until they die. They treat life like a, a waiting room. Just amuse yourself until your name is called, except that they believe we're waiting for nothing. So our name will be called and we'll be ushered into oblivion. We come from nothing, we'll become nothing again, which means that we are fundamentally nothing right now and nothing means anything, nothing matters. That's at the heart of this. All that matters is deriving pleasure from wherever you can derive it. Satisfy your desires, satiate your ego. You know, this also explains the rise. I said, I said everything's declining except suicide and drug overdoses. The other thing, uh, rather, you know, the other thing rising, though, is LGBT identification. That's because people are looking for, you know, their identity and their, in their, in their, um, in their sexual proclivities. Just satisfy yourself. Pleasure, that's all that matters. There's nothing more to do in life. There's nothing more to offer and leads nowhere in the end. So hop on your phone, scroll and scroll, keep yourself distracted until the lights go out. And I think a large number of people are, are satisfied with that kind of life. Or at least, if they're not satisfied, they have resigned themselves to it, this life of nothingness. So where do we go from here? Well, there is no solution. There's no hope outside of what we really need, which is a full spiritual revival. I mean, we spend too much time dancing around the edges of the cultural rot. We need to confront it down in the, in the darkest depths at its core. You know, the parts of this problem nobody wants to look at it's pretty depressing. If you go down all the way down there to the core, you find that it's totally empty. There's a, a giant cavern that needs to be filled with something. 
And what is that something? Truth. You know, with meaning, with faith, with God. Now let's get to our five headlines. Will the lack of a red wave during the midterms lead to more reckless spending by a more emboldened administration, higher taxes maybe, deeper inflation? If you're unsure how the next two years will unfold, talk to Birch Gold Group about protecting your savings with gold. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert your IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals so you can own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form of currency. Uh, When inflation soars and all other assets go sideways, gold is still there. This month, you can get a free gold back with every $5,000 purchase when you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd. Just text Walsh to 989898. Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. Text Walsh to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold. Then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. With every purchase you make before December 22nd, you'll get a free gold back. That is a great stocking stuffer just in time for Christmas. So you got to text Walsh to 989898 and protect yourself with gold today. All right. So we uh, begin the five headlines with some more great election news for the Republicans. Hooray. Um, Daily Wire has the report. Senator Raphael Warnock has defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in Georgia's 2022 Senate runoff election. Decision desk headquarters called the race at approximately 9.48 p.m. Uh, Neither Walker nor Warnock secured more than 50% of the vote during the general election, thus triggering the runoff election held on Tuesday. Warnock's victory follows a disappointing midterm election from Republicans across the country, aside from several bright spots in the Georgia and Florida gubernatorial uh, races. Many pre-midterm polls and analyses predicted a red wave. We know about that. This is Warnock's second uh, runoff after he defeated GOP candidate uh, Kelly Loeffler in the 2020 race, which was not decided on the day of general election. However, there were some changes to the voting process this time around. All right. So not a terribly surprising turn of events. Another loss for Republicans. Just added to the list. And this brings us back to the, the blame game, the finger pointing. Who's at fault? What is at fault? And the answer is, it's sort of all of the above, right? All, all of the things that people are pointing to, um, all of that plays a part. Mail-in voting, ballot harvesting, yes. Obviously, that's part of the story here, as always. Also, weak candidates. We, you know, we can't get around that problem. That, that might not be the only issue here. It's not just a matter of candidate quality, but it is also that. Um, there were Republicans who won in Georgia, like Kemp, for example. Herschel Walker didn't. And Herschel Walker is a, a celebrity. Okay, but that's pretty much all that can be said about him. That's, that's the only argument anyone could ever make for him is uh, he's a celebrity. And then in the, in the general election, the, the real argument is that, well, he's the Republican. He's better than Raphael Warnock, which, of course, he was. But it's like not hard to be better than Warnock or any Democrat. So he was not a strong candidate. He didn't have any sort of track record that would make anyone think he'd be a good senator. He had loads of baggage. He was not at all good at articulating his ideas, just a weak candidate. And that's, and that's an issue too. Republicans pick some very weak candidates this time around, every time around. And it's not that every Republican who lost was weak. There were, some, there were a few very strong Republicans, very impressive candidates who lost, but overall, candidate quality is an issue. What's the solution to that? Well, uh, you know, Republican leadership needs to be cleaned out. Everyone needs to be fired, but that's not happening. It, it hasn't happened so far. Um, 
usually the, the establishment of the Republican Party, they're rewarded for their failures. They're able to reward themselves, and that seems to be what's happening here again. Republicans need to master the ballot harvesting and mail-in voting game, but there doesn't appear to be much will or desire to do that either. Because instead, we'd rather stamp our feet and talk about how unfair it is and how much we don't like it. And I don't like it either. But we just have to decide, do we want to lose forever or do, do we want to win? This, this is a choice. Do you want to win or not? Because you can't do it. You have to win first before you can do anything else. You want to reform the, 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 uh, our elections. You want to make changes to the, to the way the elections are conducted. You can't do that unless you win. You have to win first. To do anything, you have to win. And you will not be able to win if you don't master the system as it's currently in place. If you don't learn how to exploit the system as it's currently in place, you will just never win. And you can have your purity as you lose. We can all lose and be very pure in our, in our losing and say, we stood on our principles. We don't like mail-in voting and ballot harvesting, and so we refused to do it, and so we just lost forever. Democrats took over everything, and that was it. So do, is that what we want? Do we want to be, do we want to be the, the pure-hearted losers? Or do we want to be smart and cunning um, and, uh, and have our wits about us and win? I hate mail-in voting. I hate ballot harvesting. You know how I feel about it. Uh, but it's here. It's happening. It's a thing. And we also need better candidates, too, with going forward. You know, this, this idea that uh, whether it's Herschel Walker or Oz in Pennsylvania, this idea that, well, they're a celebrity, so that means that, they, you know, that's, that they'll, they'll cruise to victory. Hopefully, anyone who harbored this uh, hallucinatory idea has, has been disabused of, of that notion now. It's, it, it just doesn't work that way. No one is, in, you know, it, it, the celebrity factor, it really means less and less, honestly, uh, with each passing year. If this was 10 or 15 years ago, it might be a different story. But, but these days, I, I think actually the celebrity factor means less than it ever has. Because first of all, nobody's impressed with celebrities anymore. Like no one cares. It's just there. There are a million celebrities. There are a million famous people. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And uh, and also because of the overexposure, all all of the politicians immediately become celebrities anyway. I wish it wasn't that way. They shouldn't be, but that's the way it goes because of twenty four hour cable news coverage and social media and the internet. Just this overexposure. We see them all the time. We hear about them all the time. And so in effect, they all become celebrities. Um, and, and, and so it's just, it's not, if, if that's what you're falling back on, oh, he's famous. It's not going to be enough. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. It's not impressive. Especially when it's someone who was famous for being a football player, you know, 25 years ago. Nobody cares about that. No one cares about celebrity, uh, you know, at all, really. That's, that's the honest truth. Um, all right. Joe Biden was uh, speaking in Phoenix and always has important uh, things to say. It's important just to stay, I think, informed about what the president of the United States is talking about. That's a very important thing. It's our civic duty. So let's check in with uh, Biden. And today, TSMC has announced a second major investment. that will construct a second fab here in Phoenix to build chips, three nanochips, the three nanochip. 
chips and a three nano. And you know what I'm saying. <laughs> nano, no, no. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Mr. President. That was, uh, so that's what he's up to. I think we can move on. Also want to mention this. It's uh, that time of the year for Time Magazine to unveil its person of the year. And you can, if you haven't seen the news yet, just take a guess who it is. Who's the person of the year? Who's the, the, the corporate media? Who are they going to award person of the year to? You'll never figure it out. Actually, you will. You know, you, you guessed right immediately. Zelensky, obviously, is their person of the year. Now, of course, the title person of the year is meaningless. Nobody really knows what it means. What, is, what does it mean to be person of the year? Is it supposed to be the most important person of the year? The person who has had the greatest impact on the world? If that's the measuring stick, then Zelensky obviously shouldn't be the guy because the conflict in Ukraine has very little impact on the rest of the world. It really doesn't affect anyone else whether Ukraine is controlled by one corrupt regime or the other. It's just like for most of us, it just doesn't mean anything. Um, now, Zelensky has been trying to drag the whole world into a global uh, nuclear conflict, and that would certainly have an impact. So maybe that's what they mean. I don't know. Besides, if, if this is just a matter of giving the title to whoever has had the most influence or, you know, for good or ill, who's ever had the most influence, whoever's most altered world events or whatever it is. And, and if that's the case and you're going to select somebody from the Russian-Ukraine war, then shouldn't the guy be actually Putin? I mean, that's for, for, the, for the person who just has had the most impact, period. That's how, that's how they used to decide this, right? Uh, it wasn't a title given to who they like the most, but rather just whoever has had the most impact on the world, good or bad. Um, so that's what they would do, but, but it's not it anymore. Here's what it really means. Person of the Year Award is actually an award for the media. That's what it is now. So time is awarding itself. It's awarding the media. Um, and the award actually says, this is the person that we in the media were most interested in this year. This is the person that we made the biggest deal about, uh, the person that we said was the most important, and we're always right. And so really, it's an award to themselves. I mean, they gave it, they gave it to Greta Thunberg a couple of years ago. They made her the person of the year. Perfect example. It's just, it's, that's an award to them. Like She's a, she's a, 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 a media creation. And so they're giving it to her, but really it's, it's about them. They're giving it to themselves. All right. Here's a, an actual important story. The Daily Wire has this report, and uh, I can't read the whole thing, but it's worth going to uh, dailywire.com to read this. Uh, kind of a follow-up from Luke Rosiak. It says, a Virginia grand jury investigating a public school district's apparent cover-up of the rape of a girl by a male student in a girl's bathroom, which made headlines uh, after a Daily Wire investigation, blasted school officials for their stunning lack of transparency and intentional amnesia in a much-anticipated report released on Monday. In the fact-finding report, the nine-person Loudoun County panel disclosed for the first time that a teacher's aide walked into the bathroom while the ninth-grade victim was being raped by her male classmate, saw two pairs of feet under a stall door, but did nothing. The 91-page report called out district officials for a host of lapses, that's one way to put it, that continued long after the initial attack. The report stated, quote, we believe that throughout this ordeal, LCPS administrators were looking out for their own interests instead of the best interests of LCPS. This invariably led to a stunning lack of openness, transparency, and accountability, both to the public and the special ground jury. Grand jury. The report also found 
that the district concealed the nature of the attack, even as the district was preparing to impose a controversial new transgender bathroom policy. After the rape, the student was transferred to another school where he was involved in multiple incidents of misbehavior against girls that were known to officials, but until now unknown to the public, the report said. Even the rapist's own grandmother told officials that he was a sociopath, but little was done. The rapist soon committed another sexual assault, this time in a classroom. The grand jury report was released to inform the public of its findings based on subpoenaed documents and testimony. Virginia Attorney General Jason uh, Myers noted in a statement that his office had requested the grand jury and that it has not been disbanded, meaning it could bring criminal charges at a later date. Um, the Daily Wire report then goes into the details of the assault that, that happened in the bathroom. This is on May 22nd of 2021. Uh, a male student wearing a skirt anally raped a ninth grade girl in the girl's bathroom. And uh, we, we knew, obviously, about the rape because of the Daily Wire's report, we, we didn't know that, a, stu- that a, a teacher, a faculty member, walked into the bathroom in the middle of it and did nothing. Um, the report reveals that in the days before the bathroom rape, a teacher's assistant wrote to her department chair that the student, quote, this is the rapist, has come into class more than once with his arm around a girl's neck. I've caught him sitting on other girls' laps several times, if this kind of reckless behavior persists, I wouldn't want to be held accountable if somebody should get hurt. So she wrote this note to her department chair, and then a few days later, this person committed a rape in, in one of the bathrooms. Um, school officials seem more interested in getting the teacher's aid in trouble than the student. The department chair questioned the true motivation of the author, Uh, The report said the department chair mentioned the uh, email to an assistant principal who questioned whether the author of the email had followed proper protocol. Um, And then it goes on to more details about what exactly happened. Uh, The the victim's father shows up to the school after he finds out what happened. And he obviously is, you know, I don't think words could properly describe a father's feeling after finding out that their daughter had been raped. But he was, you know, to put it lightly furious and uh, they're more interested in just like getting him out of there and and and, and he was stonewalled and and uh, then infamously eventually arrested at a, at a school board meeting it says by 3 30 p.m of that same day Loudon's chief operating officer had arrived at the school and sent an email to the superintendent saying quote the incident at SBHS is related to policy 8 8040 uh, the policy that would allow transgender males the right to use the girls bathroom now, as I said, you you, you got to go and wa- read the whole report. I mean, it says like, what what was the consequence for this um, for this? It says on September 9th, twenty twenty one, just two weeks into the school year, uh, the rapist grabbed the shoulder of a girl really hard in class, tried to take her computer, and asked if she posted nudes online. The superintendent, deputy superintendent, and superintendent chief of staff all learned of this incident and knew it was the same individual who committed the sexual assault at SBHS, despite having a 12-page disciplinary file wearing an ankle monitor being closely monitored by the broad-run principal, knowledge of this incident by the highest administrator in LCPS, and a suggestion by the court services unit that a more serious punishment be given, the rapist was simply asked to write the following. I will not touch others. I will not ask for photos to include intimate or provocative. Because this was after he committed the rape, was transferred to another school, He's still being aggressive, sexually aggressive with, with female students. This is all known. His history is known. And after another incident, 
His punishment is writing that note. And that was it. You know, we heard from the left after Luke Rosiak's initial expose that this case had nothing to do with the bathroom policies. They were looking for ways to frantically kind of uh, uh, get around all of this. And one thing that they said is, this has nothing to do with bathroom policies at all. And yet, here we have school officials admitting privately in writing that the two issues are indeed related. Because obviously they are. There's a, there's a rape in your, in your school by a male student in the female bathroom, and yet you're still pushing through a policy that would open up the female bathrooms to any boy that wants to walk in. Obviously, it's related. But it's about more than that. This is a systemic failure um, fueled by woke insanity, along with cowardice, incompetence, self-preservation, selfishness, all the factors that allow these kinds of things to happen within institutions. Um, in fact, sex abuse in institutions, whether it's the Catholic church or Hollywood or the public school system, they always follow the same script. You've got some people lower down the ladder who notice the problem, try to bring attention to it. The teacher's aid in this case, um, they're stonewalled by the bureaucracy. The problem is covered up. Predators are just like transferred from one place to another. They bounce around. It's like this game of hot potato between the various uh, you know, institutions because nobody wants to deal with it. And it's always the same story. We have to eventually deal with the fact that this issue in Loudoun is indeed part of a systemic problem, something that is endemic within the public school system. That's the next step here. As some of us have been shouting about for years, you know, there, there is a, there is a system-wide sex abuse epidemic in the public school system. It has been going on for literally decades. The Department of Education itself acknowledged the problem back in 2004, okay, and uh, and nothing has been done about it. So this is this is just, you know, this is tip of the iceberg stuff. And this kind of thing can only happen. In, in an institution that has this sort of systemic problem. Eventually we have to we have to deal with that. And you would think that we as a as a society would be very would be very um, eager to confront the sex abuse problem in this public school system, considering that that 50 million kids are in this system. It's like millions of of us, not me, but millions of, of us, millions of Americans Send our kids in this system every single day. You think if there's evidence, you you think if the Department of Education themselves, nearly 20 years ago, acknowledged that there is a massive problem of sex abuse in the school system, sex abuse committed by teachers and sex abuses committed by students against other students, you'd think that we would would, uh, wake up and pay attention. And then you have millions of parents saying, my God, I'm, this is where, you know, my kid is potentially being subjected to this. But said we've been uh, looking the other way. All right. Libs of TikTok has this. It's a uh, video giving teachers tips on how to make classrooms more trans inclusive, because that, of course, is, should be our goal. Let's listen to this. Hi, I'm Jack. My pronouns are they, them, and I identify as trans and non-binary. 
Here are three things you can do to support trans children in your school. Number one, be a visible trans ally. There are lots of ways to do this, from having trans inclusive flags in your classroom to having trans inclusive storybooks on your bookshelves. Number two, stop unnecessarily gendering things in your school. This ranges from easy changes, like not grouping children into boys and girls, to not having gendered uniforms. Consider how excluded trans and especially non-binary children and staff may feel about gendered spaces and policies. And number three, teach children about pronouns, what they are, how we use them, and why they're important. This allows trans people to not be singled out for their pronouns and instead makes pronouns part of the norm. You know, we can make all the usual points here that this is uh, this is not what schools are supposed to do. This is not what the classroom is for. This is not education. This is a form of religious indoctrination. To promote transgenderism in the class is a violation of the separation of church and state that we always hear about. It's a violation of many other things as well, but it is also religious indoctrination. Um, but rather than dwelling on those points this time, I, w- I want to make a, a different observation. Because there's one thing you said that jumped out at me, maybe slightly subtle. I don't know if you picked up on it. Amid all the the, the usual insanity, he said, especially non-binary kids, especially. So he's talking about the challenges faced by, quote, trans and non-binary kids, even though there are no such thing as trans and non-binary kids, or adults for that matter. But he's discussing the challenges or, or whatever, and, and he says, uh, especially non-binary. And that's because... There's a, there's a shift happening. We should, we should take note of this. There is a shift happening at the top of the victim pyramid. And we've talked about the victim pyramid many times on, on this show. This is the victim hierarchy. There is a hierarchy of victimhood on the left. And there's, always, there's, there's, there's this perpetual jostling and the war at the top. Like, who's the uber victim? Um, what group can claim status as the uber super victims? And if you're if you're at that uh, if you if you're at the top of the victim hierarchy, it means that it's kind of almost an inverted hierarchy because it means that you cannot be guilty of victimizing anyone else, but everyone is always victimizing you. And victimhood is power, so it means that you have power. It's a very it's a very inverted upside down sort of topsy turvy system, but that's the system. So there's this, but right now there's this uh, there's a this shift happening where non-binary is slowly replacing trans as the most favored, most protected, most cherished group. In fact, here's a prediction for you. I I think that trans as a category will fade away like the category of lesbian has all but disappeared as, 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 you know, because lesbian's been subsumed by trans. And uh, and the same thing's going to happen with trans. I think trans gets subsumed by non-binary. Eventually, it's just, it it all is simply non-binary. Now, in effect, it's the same thing. It's the same brand of insanity. There's no real difference. They're both made up. They're both making essentially the same false claim. But the advantage of non-binary is that it's even more vague. It's even more undefinable. It's even more subjective than trans. So trans still ties itself, for one thing, to the very gender binary that it's supposedly be, that it's supposedly trying to dismantle. Non-binary is meant to be apart from that entirely. And the great thing for non-binary is that there are no expectations attached to it. There's no definitions. There's just like nothing at all. Um, it, it means even less than trans. 
And trans, when you get down to it, really doesn't mean anything either, of course. But 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 non-binary is even more undefinable, even more uh, absurd and vague. And uh, it can just be whatever you want it to be, which makes it more useful to the left. It's a more useful category. The more vague, the more undefinable, the more uh, ambiguous the category is, the more useful it is to them. And so more and more, that's what we're going to start to see. It's like trans, trans becomes passe, it becomes old-fashioned, and the new thing is to be non-binary. All right, what else have we got? Um, before we get to the comment section, okay, there's one other, a, another one from Lives of TikTok. Well, not from her, but reposted by her, uh, to be clear. And I, I wanted to play this too, because there's, there's another important point. So here's a TikToker explaining what you need to do if you want to invite your white friend to hang out. So this is really for if you're non-white and you want to bring your white friend along for a, a hangout session, there's a, a process that needs to be followed. And let's listen to that. Controversial opinion, but if you have a token white and you're hanging out with your friend group of color, you need to ask permission from everybody in the group to bring your white friend. Like, don't just bring them. Ask for explicit permission from everyone because just because you're comfortable with them doesn't mean that everybody's comfortable with them. I might not be in the mood to deal with white shenanigans that day. That's that's all I'm saying. And another thing, it feeds into their ego. Like don't don't let them think they're a good white person. Don't don't give them that card to use against other people. Please don't do that. To me, this doesn't go nearly far enough. And the real problem is that it puts the onus on a member of the BIPOC community to seek permission on behalf of the white friend, which I think is unacceptable. Like what, what needs to happen is the white friend who wishes to accompany a POC friend to a POC gathering must himself or herself or herself submit a written request form no less than 14 days before the gathering. This, this request should be signed. It should be notarized. It should include three professional references and two personal references. Of course, I'll, you know, let's say $135 processing fee as well. That's the bare minimum. There should also be an essay explaining how you are an ally and why you're safe and uh, you know, how it is that you pose no threat to the POC members of the engagement that you're attending. That's what needs to happen. But keep in mind that, that claiming you're an ally and that you're safe is itself racist as it denies the reality of inherent white racism, and it shows that you haven't really done the work. Of course, if you don't say that you're an ally and that you're safe, then it must also be assumed that you're neither of those things. So you're racist either way. Just remember that. And remember, too, that it's necessary for you to seek permission, yet also seeking permission is racist because it centers you as the white person. It may be best to just, I guess, stay at home and try not to hang out. You know, don't, don't try to hang out with any POC individuals in the first place, then again, staying home and refusing to congregate with non-white people is segregation and otherization and marginalization, and that's also racist. So to review, seek permission or else you're racist, but don't seek permission because that's racist. Declare yourself non-racist or else you're racist, but also you're racist if you claim to be not racist. Try to be an ally or else you're not an ally and thus you're racist, but also Trying to be an ally is racist. I hope this clarifies the situation for everybody. I think the real conclusion here is just to not give the slightest damn if anyone calls you racist. 
It's like that's 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 actually the only way out they've given us. That's 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 the only possible door to take. And uh, so we should gladly say, well, I'll take that option then. Fine with me. All right, let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. If you're listening to this show, odds are that you put a lot of stock in how you raise your kids. You understand that your children look to you to define their values and their perspectives of the world. That's why it's extremely important that you have a will in place. The will also determines how your financial assets are dispersed, as well as your personal property as well. Uh, it lays out your healthcare power of attorney to ensure that your end-of-life decisions are carried out. So if you're just starting out, you don't have thousands of dollars to spend on an attorney, but you uh, want to make sure that your savings, your belongings, and your family are all protected, well, Epic Will is perfect for you. You have to create your will at epicwill.com. Epic Will's early estate plan started just 119 bucks, and you can save 10% when you use promo code Walsh. Go to epicwill.com, use promo code Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. Miguel says, I was a part of a popular cover band in my native country of Jamaica. No one or no law could make us perform at a gay wedding. There are certain questions we would ask before we accept a gig, namely, what type of event, who will be at the event, and so on. If we found out it's a gay wedding, as we did once, we would just decline. Case closed. We have nothing against gay people, as I'm sure we've performed at many venues where gay people were in attendance. A gay event and a general event where gays are in attendance are two totally different things. Y equals MX plus C. It's simple. Well, Miguel, you confused me with the math equation at the end. I was with you the whole way. I was saying amen, and then and then I'm confused. Um, but I'm with you on all the rest of it. Aaron Bell says, the wedding photographer for my husband's and, and my wedding uh, retired early because he knew he might end up being asked to do a gay wedding. He knew if he refused, he would be screwed. There are a lot of cases like this. I've heard very similar situations. People not getting into the wedding business to begin with or, or getting out of it. Um, I know of, you know, personally, someone who owned a, a, a venue that had been used for weddings got out of the business for exactly this reason. Um, and of course, the left hears that and they think, you know, they're, they're, they're rubbing their hands together and say, yeah, our plan is working. Good. This is, this is part of the point. Uh, Goat says, I'm white and I'm proud of it. No, no, that's, that's racist. Don't you realize you, you can be proud of being black or Asian or Hispanic or gay. You can be proud of any race other than white. Just as you can be proud of any sexuality other than being straight. Then you know that? Those are the rules. How can the rules be justified or defended? I mean, they can't, obviously. Um, Tim says the Civil Rights Act needs to be repealed since it wasn't clear to the courts that it was addressed to the public sector, not the private sector. It's been used increasingly and illegally against the private sector since its inception. If a business doesn't want to serve whatever minority or whatever group, uh, they don't have to, and they have the right to announce it. Well, it was meant to be addressed to the private sector. Um, That's the whole point. But I agree that businesses should have the right to serve who they want. That's it. That's all. Um, as we've been talking about for the last few days. Just give, give businesses the right. That, that's, the, that's the easiest solution here. Um, there are other solutions. There are other ways of um, kind of splitting the hairs here so that you are protecting the, uh, the religious liberty of uh, photographers and bakers and all the rest of it. Um, uh, you know, you, 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 you can parse these kinds of cases 
But the simplest and easiest and most sensible thing is just to say, you know, serve whoever you want, don't serve whoever you want. The market will respond. And if you make a decision in that regard, uh, where you decide I'm, I'm going to exclude certain races from my restaurant or whatever, if anybody was, would, would do that, that would be suicidal to their business and they'd go out of business and, uh, and that's it. They just announce themselves and then they go out of business. All right. Margot says, I can tell that Matt has experienced a narcissist up close and personal for a duration because he knows exactly how narcissists are, spot on description. I actually haven't. I just live in a culture dominated by them. That's all that I've, I've noticed. BV says, after that black pink analysis, I want Matt as my English teacher ASAP. Grant says, only Matt could actually make black pink lyrics sound like actual wisdom. DJM, beautiful inter- interpretation of the black pink ly- lyric. I'm in tears. Thank you, Matt. Uh, many, many comments like this, and I appreciate everyone's, you know, I wasn't sure uh, if the audience, if there really was any desire in the audience to hear my in-depth analysis of uh, K-pop songs, but uh, it was something that came from the heart, you know, and I felt, I felt compelled to talk about it, and I'm, I'm very relieved to find out that it resonated with so many people. Finally, Vicky says, Matt, I saw on your wife's Twitter that Ben Shapiro is expecting another baby. Do you think he'll catch up to you? Yeah, apparently Ben announced that on, all, on, on an all-access, so I, I don't think I'm stealing his thunder here. It's already on Twitter. They are expecting their fourth. Will he catch up to me? Well, we've done, we've done the two-for-one special twice now, so uh, we're reproducing much more efficiently. He's going to have to start doubling up, I think, if he wants to beat me in the race. But honestly, let's not discount there's a dark horse in the race here, which is uh, in, the, in the Daily Wire repopulation contest. There's also Michael Knowles, you know, because they— uh, they had a kid, and then somehow, like a month and a half later, they had another kid. So they're, they're going at a pretty good clip. I still feel like we're safe, though, with six. Look at it this way. Between me, Ben, and Michael, that's 12 kids so far. So I think between the three of us, we have more children than the entire rest of the media combined, most likely. This is how serious we are about, about uh, reversing the population trends. It's also how serious we are about driving Daily Wire memberships, because we will literally conceive new Daily Wire members if that's what it takes. It's hard to believe that the holidays are already here. Now, uh, I know a lot of you are already Daily Wire Plus members and get to enjoy the great content that we have released this year, like Terror on the Prairie, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, and my very own documentary, What is a Woman? For those of you who haven't been able to enjoy it because you're not a member, well, now is the time to take advantage of the 30% holiday sale. This discount also applies to gift memberships, so don't miss this opportunity to get everyone on your list an annual gift membership from Daily Wire Plus with code HOLIDAY at checkout. Since joining Daily Wire Plus, Jordan Peterson has been on fire with tons of content. Most recently, Jordan went with our uh, production team to Washington, D.C., filmed a fantastic documentary on the Museum of the Bible called Logos and Literacy. In it, Jordan meets with historians, theologians, and philosophers to discuss the history of the Bible and its influence on the world. It's as beautiful as it is engaging. Jordan even sent us a note to say how happy he was with the way it turned out. He watched it twice. That's how much he liked it. So remember, this content is only available for Daily Wire Plus members. So sign up today. Use code HOLIDAY at checkout to get 30% off your new annual Daily Wire Plus membership at dailywire.com slash Walsh. That's dailywire.com slash Walsh today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Now, I wasn't following the controversy this week, uh, or rather last week very closely, because there are only so many controversies you can follow at any given moment. For those who were 
out of this particular loop as well. It turns out that the elderly owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, was in the vicinity of a racist occurrence 65 years ago when he was 14. A picture surfaced of Jones, who's now, I think, about 80 years old, standing in a, uh, in a large crowd outside of North Little Rock High School while a group of white students attempted to block a group of black students from entering the building. This was, again, over half a century ago. There's no evidence that Jones himself was trying to prevent the desegregation of his school. He was merely in the area where such efforts were happening. Um, and he was, like, looking on curiously. Even if a 14-year-old Jerry Jones, 65 years ago, actually was opposed to desegregation, even if he did participate in the human blockade to prevent it, that would still have no bearing on today. When he was, if it's 65 years ago when he's 14, it would be completely absurd to try and hold an old man accountable for failing to have racially enlightened views as an adolescent in the 1950s. The whole controversy is ludicrous, and yet it raged on with the media trying to make something out of a non-scandal. Um, though it was never clearly, precisely clear what they wanted to make out of it exactly. What is Jerry Jones supposed to do about the picture? Retire in disgrace because there were racist people in his high school in 1957? Should he go up to Canada and have himself euthanized? Now, I'm sure the race-baiting rage mob would greatly appreciate either of those gestures, especially the second one, but uh, it won't accomplish much for that to happen except to provide more sick satisfaction to sadists with a fetish for humiliating random people for no apparent reason. It was at least an opportunity for the usual suspects to get up on their soapboxes. LeBron James found a way, uh, as he always does, to make himself the story here, to make himself actually the victim. He expressed deep hurt and offense that the sports reporters at a post-game press conference last week hadn't asked him about this, hadn't given him the chance to uh, opine on this subject. Here's what he said. I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Okay. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I don't even want you guys to say nothing. When I watched Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. And I feel like as a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform, when we do something wrong or, or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage, it's on the bottom ticker, it's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago and we all make mistakes, I get it, but it seemed like it's just been buried under like, Oh, it happened. Okay, we just we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. Appreciate it. Hmm. Uh, just for the record, by the way, LeBron, he, uh, he immediately threw Kyrie Irving under the bus and condemned him for harming people. So, you know, this, this is what a, what a fraud 
this guy is. But now he wants to be asked non-basketball questions. Um, but he wants to pick which questions he's asked. Because the thing with Kyrie Irving is like he's he, a basketball player. Uh, he's played with LeBron. So it kind of makes sense for him to be asked about it. Jerry Jones is uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, which is an entirely different sport. But as Clay Travis pointed out last week, you never see him you know, complaining that he isn't asked enough questions about, I don't know, China's human rights violations. No, he only wants the easy questions. He wants the ones that tee him up to deliver a little pre-planned speech. Or else he wants you to ask him about the books that he's pretending to read. That's the other subject he loves to talk about. Speaking of usual suspects, Jameel Hill took to the pages of The Atlantic to uh, search for the deeper significance of the Jerry Jones story. This is what she said. If you're wondering why in professional football, so few black coaches get hired and black players struggle to be heard, you can learn a lot from a 65-year-old image of Jerry Jones. In a 1957 photo published uh, late last month by the Washington Post, the future owner of the Dallas Cowboys, then 14, stood among a group of white teenagers who were blocking six black students from desegregating his Arkansas high school. In an interview with the Post, Jones minimized his role in the event. Quote, I don't know uh, that I or anybody anticipated or had a background of knowing what was involved. It was more a curious thing, Jones told the newspaper, which has published a series of stories about the NFL's failures to promote black coaches over the course of decades. Jones was a sophomore at North Little Rock High when the photo was taken. You could argue that Jones was only a kid, but as an adult, he hasn't adequately reflected on what his presence in a crowd of hostile white teens would have meant to black students, and he hasn't fundamentally disavowed the narrow, bigoted attitudes that once surrounded him and are still a force in football today. Yes, Jones's reflections are not adequate by Jamil's standards. The woman who has never engaged in anything resembling introspection or self-criticism is here to tell the rest of us what adequate introspection and self-criticism looks like. She also claims that racism is still a force in football today, which is like saying that, I don't know, diet culture is a force at Golden Corral. If, if there's any racism in the NFL, it would have to go the other way, seeing as how the NFL disproportionately hires black people and turns them into famous millionaires. That's what the NFL does. This, of course, isn't really about racism in the NFL. It's about the race baiters desperately clinging on to past sins, past grievances, past injustices, uh, even and especially the ones that they were not around for. Nothing is allowed to change. No individual is allowed to change. The past is never in the past. There is no past. There is only an eternal present, and all that ever happened is somehow still happening and will never stop happening. Time is a flat circle. There is no forgiveness in their worldview. There's no redemption. They claim to be working for improvement and progress in society, but their ideology precludes that. Nothing gets better. Uh, nobody grows or learns. Every wound remains fresh and bleeding forever because that's what they want. This is essentially the argument for reparations, which the state of California, by the way, is working towards implementing. Their reparations task force, assembled by Gavin Newsom, is now kicking around figures as high as a quarter of a million dollars for each black resident. But how can this even be accomplished? If the idea is to pay reparations to the descendants of slaves, will they conduct genealogy tests ahead of time to distinguish from you know, the, uh, uh, the, the descendants of African slaves and the descendants of African slave traders and slave owners, of which there were many? Are we going to distinguish between those two? What about black people whose families came to this country many years after slavery was abolished? What about those whose ancestors were wealthy slave owners in Africa and then came to America after emancipation? What about those who are mixed race, half white and half black? Do they pay reparations to themselves? 
And what about white people who are descended from those enslaved in Northern Africa or who came here as indentured servants or who came here long after slavery and experienced bigotry and prejudice of their own? Any reparations plan would have to be able to make these distinctions before it could even begin to claim any sort of ethical rationale, yet no reparations plan, including this one, grapples with any of this. All the black people are in effect considered slavery descendants, whether they really are or not, and all the white people are considered descendants of slave owners, whether they really are or not. It's it's unconscionably stupid and unjust. Of course, that's not to say that I would favor reparations for the actual descendants of slavery, whoever and wherever they are, uh, because it's been 150 years. It's been a century and a half since the practice was abolished. There's been many generations to recover from the trauma. And if you're still somehow feeling persecuted by a form of persecution that you didn't experience and your parents didn't experience and your grandparents and grandparents' grandparents didn't experience, then it's, it's probably because you want to feel persecuted. This, again, is how the left's racial ideology works. Minority groups are encouraged to hold on to grudges for centuries. Nothing is allowed to change. Nothing is allowed to get better. Nobody is allowed to move on ever. Not after a decade, not after two decades, not after 15 decades. It's just not possible to have a functioning, much less thriving society that is built this way governed by generational resentment and blood libel and scars that are perpetually reopened again and again because nobody is interested in allowing them to heal. You can't even have a functional family when there's a perpetual resentment, you know, fault-finding. Every argument devolves into a relitigation of wrongs committed in the ancient past. A marriage that's plagued by petty bitterness like that and grievance-mongering will collapse, and quickly, if there isn't a change. So how does this work when when we extend it out to an entire society? How can a country survive if our arguments cannot go anywhere because they can't move past the events of the mid-19th century? It can't survive. That's the answer. It's not intended to survive. That's the point, after all. It's a destructive agenda by design. And that's why those behind the agenda are, once again today, canceled. That'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.